Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. The book of Acts is the story of the gospel of Christ, the birth of the church, the spirit lighting the flame of the spread of God's kingdom to the nations. We'll be in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43, and we'll see how uh, up until Acts 10, the gospel had spread like, like wildfire. That flame that the Spirit lit, he, he tended to it, and he spread it, and despite all their best efforts, the Pharisees and those opposed to the gospel couldn't stop it. But primarily, it had spread from Jerusalem through Judea. It was beginning to sneak its way into Samaria. It was beginning to get out toward the nations. Jesus had promised that it would go to the nations. It would go to the ends of the earth. And then we arrive to Acts chapter 10. It's a story about Peter and a guy named Cornelius. We first meet Cornelius. He's a a devout Gentile who is devoted to the God of Israel. It's, it's strange for him to be so obedient to the law, to, to worship the, the one true God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Israel. Cornelius has a visit from an angel who says, hey, you need to send your people to go get Peter, and Peter's got something to say to you. Meanwhile, Peter's on a walk, And he gets hungry, so he goes to the roof of a house, like any of us would when we're hungry. And he has a vision where there's this sheet coming down and all these animals. And God's like, hey, take one of those. Eat it. Kill it. Eat it. But they were all animals that Peter's like, I would never touch that. Those are unclean. And God's like, no, no, like you can take that hog and smoke it. It's going to be 14 hours. If you're really hungry, it's probably not the way. Maybe choose the deer. I I don't know. But anyways, Peter, they're there for you. And Peter's like, no, no, no way. I would never touch an unclean animal. And God says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call unclean. And Peter, one last time, We're running out of Peter's stories at this point in Scripture, but one last time, he gives us a big old, yeah, I don't get it. I'm not sure what this is about. Peter was was not sure what Jesus wanted him to do. No big surprise from Peter there. You would think by this point he would get it, but he didn't, and that's okay, because here come Cornelius' men who find him on the roof, and they're like, hey, you got to come to our guy Cornelius. And Peter's like, okay, I think that this might be related to my vision. He gets to Cornelius' house. He realizes that everybody's uh, Gentile. And he's like, oh, okay, I think I get it. You yourselves know, this is a quote from Acts 10, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Pretty wild thing for Peter to say in the man's house, right? Like, hey, I thought you guys were so unclean I couldn't hang out with you, but now that I'm in your house, I realize I can. But uh, first, 
Peter, what Peter says is unlawful, he's not, it's not breaking God's law that he's concerned or should be concerned about. There was nothing in the Old Testament to indicate that Peter shouldn't even visit with Cornelius and his, his Gentile house. It was unlawful to Jewish tradition, to the customs, to the, the customs of the Pharisees, the same kind of Jewish tradition that had the Pharisees point at Jesus and call him a lawbreaker because he healed a man's hand on the Sabbath. It's like that's not really what don't work on the Sabbath is about, guys. But Peter now realizes, hey, this is, this is not unlawful. Uh, he, he realizes there's a hole in his theology that he was still calling things or, more importantly, people unclean on the basis of their ethnicity alone. And he tells Cornelius and his company uh, that he now he understands the vision he received. And Cornelius is like, that's good because we're all here, he says, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Exactly what every preacher's ever wanted to hear. Say it all. Whatever God has given you, that's what we want to hear. However long it takes, we're here for it. We're not going to take that all that long. But we will see from our passage four important truths that God wanted to communicate through Peter to the Gentiles. And we'll start with verses 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The first truth that, that God wants to communicate through Peter to these, this Gentile house of, of Cornelius and also to us who are Gentiles is that God shows no partiality to a particular people. Cornelius, as a, as a Gentile who is a, a devout follower of God, it, the scripture says that he, he prayed daily, he did his best to follow the law, but he was not an official Jewish convert. He hadn't gone through circumcision. He, he had not fully converted him, himself, and his house to Judaism, which means he wasn't privy to the promise. He was practicing the Old Testament. He was practicing Judaism, even though he didn't receive the benefits of practicing Judaism. In other words, he followed and obeyed the most difficult parts of religion, but he wasn't promised the promised land. So why in the world would, <coughs> excuse me, why in the world would Cornelius practice a religion that gave him no benefit? And I think the answer, I think the answer is that he saw God, the one true God of Israel, as the reward. The reward of practicing this religion was God himself. Jesus was the prize, though Cornelius was yet to learn that Jesus was the prize. He worshiped because he heard how good God was, and there was no other option for him but to follow this God of Israel. Contrast that with the Pharisees, who had every reason to worship and honor God. 
They had the history. They had seen how God had intervened on Israel's behalf time and time again. They knew, they studied, they memorized the history of Israel walking through the Red Sea on dry ground, of the conquering of Jericho by just walking around in a circle and blowing some horns. They had seen, they, they at least knew the stories. They had seen <clears throat> the blessings. And yet, when God himself came to them, they crucified him. And you wonder, you wonder, like, how could Cornelius, knowing those things, <coughs> agree that God didn't show partiality? It goes back to, all the way to Exodus 33, where God says to Moses, I, am, I will be gracious to whom I am gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is no respecter of persons. He does not discriminate. God didn't choose the Hebrews because they were especially awesome. He chose them because he will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. But the Pharisees' problem were they really believed their own hype. They began to, to think that God should bless them because of their obedience to the law. In fact, the Pharisees would say, we're so obedient to the law that we have created our own law to act as a hedge, a barrier around God's law. Because if we don't break our laws, then we won't break God's law. We'll show God, we'll create a standard that's even stricter than God's. So strict that Peter felt like he could not even be in the presence of Cornelius without his vision from God. So strict that Peter assumed Cornelius already knew about it. He said, you, you guys know I'm not supposed to be here. How easy is it for those of us who have grown up in church or around church, those of us who have heard the, the gospel preached since we were little, we've seen baptisms, we've seen lives change, we've seen miracles. We know God's real. How easy is it for us to get on the wrong side of that teeter-totter? We're on the, the one side, it's grateful humility, and on the other side, it's prideful self-importance. How easy is it for us to become like the Pharisees and create a barrier around the truth, begin to believe that God owes us something because of our participation. I mean, we stayed, we kept meeting the best we could during COVID. God owes us. God shows no partiality. Apart from faith in the gospel, we are evil outsiders. We're either godless Gentiles or wicked Pharisees. Cornelius had every reason to look at the barriers that the Pharisees put between him and God and say, well, I'll go back to the Pantheon. I'll go back to the pagan gods. I'll go back to Rome. I'll go back to Greece. I'll find something to worship. But he didn't. And Peter notes here, there are people in every tribe, tongue, and nation who fear God and are acceptable to him through 
Christ. And Cornelius saw the prize, the reward that is God, and worshipped him to spite the Pharisees. So God wants Cornelius, he wants the Gentiles to know there is no partiality. And he wants the Gentiles to know that he appointed, he anointed Jesus rather, for Jesus is Lord of all. We'll see that in verses 36 through 39. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of John, that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. God anointed Jesus because Jesus is Lord of all. It's so important to Peter and to Luke, who wrote Acts, who recorded this, and to the Holy Spirit, who inspired them. It's so important to note that he's Lord of all, that, G that Peter had just got his sentence started. He's like, you, you, got, you guys have already heard of Jesus. I'm sure you have, because he was preached through the... He is Lord of all. It's so important for him to say, for him to interrupt him, his thought, to say he is Lord of all. What would that mean for Cornelius? Cornelius is a, is a rare monotheistic Gentile. He believes in the one true God. But who knows what his house believes? I mean, they, they probably believe with him. But there could have been some present, or Peter could be thinking that maybe someone will hear this message or, or read it in the future, and I need them to know that you cannot add Jesus to your pantheon of pagan gods. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. This Jesus who came to earth, he is Lord of all. The only way he was ever, ever able to be righteous on earth, the only way, I mean, he was born of a, of a virgin, right? As, as the song we sung said, he was was born into, in a miraculous way. He did miraculous things. He healed people. He, he literally called someone out of their grave. And he did it all without even a, 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 the slightest disobedience to the Father. Only God could do that. He was baptized into this baptism of John. And those present heard the voice of the Father, saw the Spirit descend like a dove, and they heard the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter saw Jesus transfigured. He saw Jesus in a, a snippet of his glory. Peter wants to make sure that Cornelius and his company and us, and that, that we understand that Jesus is the Messiah because he is Lord of all. He is the King of kings. He is the, the King of the universe. His kingdom rules all other kingdoms. Colossians says that all things were created through him and for him, and by him all things are held together. John 1 says that 
In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And as confusing as that wording means, what it means is this. Jesus is God in the flesh. But what did they do to the Lord of all? Let's keep reading. Verse 39, second part. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him and rose from the dead. The, the third thing that God wants these Gentiles to see is that God raised Jesus from the dead, breaking the curse. We... We're in a, in a time, in a, in a season in our culture where there are a lot of calls for, for unity. We hear, uh, it's, we've been divided long enough, it's time to be united, but no one really knows how to unite us. The, the thing that has united people, all people, at all times, or at various times, is a common enemy. You think about the Greek city-states, how they were fiercely independent, didn't really care for one another, but when Persia came around, all right, it's time to, time to get together. Or, more to North Carolina, college basketball. Cameron Indoor Stadium. Very hostile place to play if you're the Carolina Tar Heels basketball team. And uh, you, you have these, these fans and students, uh, people who associate themselves with Duke for some reason, who, who are... are may have vastly different opinions on politics. They come from wildly different socioeconomic backgrounds, but they'll paint their faces and they'll wear crazy hats and they'll cheer for their team and they'll jeer the, the Tar Heels and the same thing 15 miles down the road in Chapel Hill. When Duke rolls into town, you've got, you've got uh, students who are super rich or slightly less rich, and you have like fans who are from all sorts of spectrums and walks of life who will come together, and they'll, they'll yell at these, these Duke basketball players just because they wear an ugly shade of blue, and their mascot is the Blue Devils. I mean, that's not their fault. Well, I guess that's kind of their fault. Why did you choose a devil as your mascot? Or you have the state fans, for example, who are united in their in their common enemies of Carolina and Duke and how those teams beat them up so much. I, if sports, outside of the world of sports, I, we love superhero movies, don't we? I mean, the proof is in the box office, billions upon billions of dollars, right? Every time one of them comes out, theaters are packed or they used to be packed and maybe will be again one day. Um, because we, we love to see the forces of good battle the forces of darkness, right? You've got all these superheroes. Obviously, I'm talking about Marvel because nobody sees DC movies, but you have all these like superheroes who have all these vastly different opinions on how much the government should be involved in their superheroing, and they, they manage to come together when Thanos shows up, and we love it. We cheer. There are videos of people standing up and cheering when Chris Evans, I mean, Captain America says, Avengers assemble. Like, ah, the chills, right? We love we love to see, we love to unite around a common enemy. We love it when Chip and Joanna Gaines find an ugly house with a common enemy. They all have the same enemy, really ugly wallpaper. 
You just tear the wall out and put shiplap up, and we love it. We eat it up. There's so many enemies that we unite around. The, the dark side, Voldemort, Pollen, Voldemort, like uh, Sauron, it, just off the top of my head, a few. Uh, we, we love to, the, nothing gets us together like a common enemy. When Jesus came, the, the, the crowds on Sunday, on Palm Sunday, cheered for him. They said, Hosanna, our Savior, our King is here. They put down palm branches. They cheered for him. By Friday, they cheered, but it was to crucify him. All the Pharisees did to initiate that process was turn Jesus into a common enemy. Someone that all the, the Hebrews who were gathered there were from all sorts of different nations. They were there for Pentecost. Or they, they were there for Passover and then stayed for Pentecost. And uh, despite their various backgrounds and potentially cheering for Jesus on Sunday, by Friday the Pharisees had convinced, him, convinced them that Jesus was a blasphemer deserving of death by hanging on the cross. There's unity on that cross. There's unity on what Peter calls the tree. Although the Pharisees convinced the people that their common enemy was Jesus, the common enemies of the people are sin and death. We, we all sin, so death is unavoidable. We can push it down the road with, with uh, our, as long as our bodies will let us. We can kick that can as far as we can kick it, but it comes for us all because of sin. There's one other common enemy for all humanity, and that enemy is me. It's me. I am the enemy. Ephesians 2 confirms this. Without Christ, I'm a child of wrath, a child of the devil, an enemy of God. There's no partiality at the tree. We are all enemies of God. We are all sinners who have earned for ourselves death. The Pharisees may have initiated that process of crucifixion, but they were just a cog, a small part of a plan that God had put into motion before the foundation of the world. Jesus agreed in eternity past to hang on that tree, to become the curse. Peter says he was hanged on a tree. It would have reminded Cornelius of Deuteronomy chapter 21, where the scripture says that cursed is anyone and everyone hanged on a tree. Galatians 3 explains it like this. Jesus became the curse to break the curse. Jesus became the curse on Friday to break it on Sunday. And when he appeared, he didn't appear to everyone, but he appeared to about 500 people who knew him best, who ate with him, who saw him drink water, and 
saw him take meals and had conversations with him. Like, like Pastor Chris preached last week with Peter. Sometimes it was uncomfortable. But Jesus appeared to those he knew would not be able to help but tell the rest of the world. God sent Jesus to become the curse, go into the grave, and he raised Jesus to break the curse. And finally, in verses 42 and 43, God made the Messiah the judge over all. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. God appointed the Messiah, the Lord over all, the one who became the curse and broke the curse to be the judge. The implications of this are astounding. Jesus is the one who suffered in, if, if we think of him as a judge, he didn't die for good, innocent people. He died for the defendant. He's unlike any other hero because he died for the enemy. But if that one is the judge, then we know that he didn't just die, but he rose and he conquered death. And Peter says, all the prophets, look, Cornelius, all the Old Testament bears witness to this one truth that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's what it means for Jesus to be declared by God the Father to be the judge. By faith in him, we receive a full pardon from the death sentence that we deserved for our disobedience. We should be the conquered enemy. But Jesus died on the tree so he could break the curse. And his resurrection finished the job and broke the curse. And he went up into heaven. And before he ascended to heaven, he said, look, my kingdom will spread to the ends of the earth. In fact, Peter, disciples, the people present at his ascension were commanded, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth and preach the gospel. And that is what happened in Acts 10. And Cornelius and his people in the verses following, they believe the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls on Gentiles, which is wild. It astounds the Jewish people present that the Holy Spirit is now mixed up with Gentiles. And the Gentiles are praising and proclaiming the name of God. And they're getting baptized. And they're saying, hey, Peter, can you stay a while and teach us how to like do this thing and follow Jesus? And then from there, the, by the end of the book of Acts, just uh, 18 chapters later, 17, depending on how math works, just a few chapters later, the gospel has reached the end of the known world. So people had to come, had to spread out farther so that the gospel could go out farther, and eventually it got here. And here we are today, church. That flame that the Spirit lit for the church has not even begun to diminish. 
The gospel is well on its way to reaching every tribe, nation, and tongue. So what, is in, what do we do with this? One, we can't try to protect the truth. Peter's default was to guard the purity of his religion, of Judaism. But even with the even with the Great Commission ringing in his ears, he still considered Gentiles unclean on the basis of their ethnicity alone. God showed him a better way. We can't guard the truth of the gospel from evil outsiders. We can't create barriers like the Pharisees did to the judge who died to save the defendants. He's going he's gonna to get to them. Regardless of what we do, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we should join God in his Missio Dei, the mission of God. Think about the Ninevites, big-time bullies against Israel, right? They were mean, nasty, just really gave Israel a hard time. And God says, Jonah, you got to go preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah's like, no, thanks. And he flees to Tarshish. He actually flees to the, or attempts to flee to the ends of the earth to get away from preaching the gospel to these Gentiles. And you know how that worked out for him. He became well acquainted with the inside of a fish. Then he still had to go back and preach to the Ninevites. And he did the bare minimum, just the really short, like almost gospel presentation. It was enough. Ninevites repent. They believe right? And what does Jonah do? He pouts under his own tree. The gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. Jesus' kingdom will reach every tribe, nation, and tongue. We can either be part of that as it goes from Wilkes to beyond, or we can pout under our tree. But either way, God's will will be accomplished. He shows no partiality, and it's going to be a diverse kingdom. We should have empathy, therefore, for the unbeliever. When we see the nations rage against God, even if, when we see them rage against God, are we empathetic? Or do we try to be the ones to cast judgment? Even if you grew up in church from nine months before you were born, even if you've been here all along, at some point you raged against God. At some point, you may not even remember it, but you were an enemy. And God was gracious to us to allow us to hear and believe the gospel. In Ephesians 2, it says that even, even our faith in the gospel is a gift so that no one can boast. So those who hate God either haven't heard of the gospel or they haven't believed it yet. That's the big difference between those who hate God and those who love Him. We can have empathy because we've been there. We've chased our idols. We've tried to be satisfied with something other than Christ as the prize and the reward. Everyone wants to believe something. Everyone wants security and satisfaction in something. They're just looking in the wrong place. And God let us look in the right place. So we were there, we can empathize. And finally, 
we should remember that Jesus is the prize. Christ is our reward. Cornelius worshiped God for God. That's why he worshiped God, to worship God. And when he found out he still needed pardon, he heard the gospel and he believed it and he was baptized. Up until then, though, he still knew that God was worthy to worship, even if he wasn't worthy of the promised land. But that's just it. There isn't a promised land. Jesus is the promised land. He is the one who satisfies our hunger because he is the bread of life. He is the one that, that parches our thirsty tongue with the cold living water that when we drink of it, we'll never have to drink from it again. He is the Sabbath rest. He is eternal life. We mistakenly picture heaven as if it's some like super long retirement with lots of golf on the beach. If you want to play golf on the beach, get locked in the sand trap. If you want Jesus, if you want eternal life, it is Jesus forever. It's a never-ending worship service complete with a really awesome banquet. It is the kingdom of Jesus where there is no devil where there is no social media, there's no canceling, there's no oppression, there's no tears, there's no pandemics, there's no nursing homes or hospice, there's no wars, no floods, no earthquakes, there's no need for ramp building ministries and prison outreach, there's no hospital visits, and absolutely no more death. So as we sing to the, about the unstoppable, jealous love of the King of Kings, who became the curse to conquer the curse for all who believe, we want to invite you to respond to the gospel. And you may need to come up front and, and talk to me or a, a leader about what it means to be forgiven of sins, but I want you to know that you don't have to come up here for that. You need only believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose to conquer death for you. And that God shows no partiality. He shows no partiality against you. There's nothing that you have done that you don't receive a pardon of if you believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. I would also invite you, church, to consider ways in which you might accidentally even be partial and show favor and consider some groups to be outside of God's reach. I would ask you, would you bristle if there's any person or group who walked through the door? Would you, would you consider refusing your table and hospitality to someone or some type of person? Because God shows no partiality. There is no one outside of his reach. And the church is not the place for partiality. It is the place to exalt the crucified and risen King of Kings. May we, may we all participate in the mission of God to spread his great and jealous love to the ends of the earth. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 